On today's Bet the Process podcast, we'll be talking all things sports betting legalization. We have two amazing guests coming on, Ryan Rodenberg, who is a sports law professor and has been doing the rounds across all the sports betting podcasts, and then Jeff Ifra, who is a preeminent sports betting lawyer has represented operators and whatnot for over 20 years. So he'll provide a really great perspective. As always, the the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app, which is the best way to track all your sports betting content legally. I guess it's never been illegal to track sports betting content. Um, It's available for free on the uh, Apple Store and on the Google Play Store. So get it today. And with that, let's start the process. to a special edition of the Bet the Process podcast. Um, the cool thing is that sports gambling is now legal in the U.S. Uh, well, that's what everyone says. It's not necessarily that it's legal. It's just that it's no longer uh, right for it to be illegal, and states can decide whether it is legal. So it's not necessarily legal, depending on what state you are right now. Uh, Rufus and I are going to welcome in a couple of amazing guests. Uh, one, the first will be Ryan Rodenberg, who is the sports law professor uh, who's done quite a bit of research on uh, sports gambling and legality for the last, say, five, six years he's been doing this. And then the second will be Jeff Ifra, who is probably one of the top lawyers in the sports gaming uh, industry, sports betting industry, has represented um, a bunch of different uh, operators um, and even some sports bettors. So um, if uh, you guys can listen on uh, past those two interviews, you'll hear Rufus and I talk about our reactions and our personal thoughts on this industry and what is to come. So thanks. And let's welcome in our first guest. We welcome into the bet, the process podcast, Ryan Rodenberg, who has really been doing the rounds. Um, your, your dance ticket has become pretty full uh, with the Supreme court's ruling lately. Hasn't it? It certainly has. I mean, I, I kind of half joke with people that this is this case has kind of been the research gift that just keeps on giving for, for someone that likes to write a lot of boring, esoteric academic articles. Uh, but after six years, I mean, Monday was just kind of like a thunderclap. I mean, it was just the chance to sit down and read this after so many years of litigation and, and other court decisions and whatnot. It's finally over. So uh, at least that portion's in the rearview mirror. Uh, there'll be a, kind of a lot to talk about in, in the not-too-distant future from whether it's individual states or, or Congress that get involved. But at least this Supreme Court case is finally over. Uh, states and sports leagues and sports bettors and casinos, I mean, they all have kind of a roadmap now in terms of what they can do. Yeah, what, what I found interesting about this whole thing was that, you know, because we've been talking about it for so long, right, you and I have been on panels as far back as, what, three years ago where we were asked, you know, when this is going to happen. And, and, you know, the answer has always been sort of five to 10 years is what people have always said. And, you know, with this day happening, I actually thought the day would always be anticlimactic. But what really, um, you know, shocked me or what I found interesting, and, and Rufus, I'd be interested to hear your comment on this too, is how much people cared about it like how many people said things to me about it how many people mentioned it to me like oh my god this is this huge moment when the reality was like in in some respects it's like obviously a huge moment but it it seems to me at least that there's a lot that still needs to be done before like you're walking into your local you know 7-eleven or whatever making a sports bet and there's there's so much unknown about how this is even going to play out that this just seems in some respects like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, Jeff, I completely agree. And I had the same experience. Monday morning, I woke up and my phone had just blown up. I had messages from like everybody being like, did you see about the Supreme Court ruling? And I think for, especially for professionals, it, it's not going to have a big impact, at least not for a while, but I think it's symbolic. And I think that's what people are reacting to. I agree. So you framed it correctly. Certainly Monday's ruling very definitively, the Supreme Court said this 26-year-old federal ban on states legalizing sports betting, that's unconstitutional. So that's been wiped off the board. 
the next step, of course, is still there's quite a bit to, to go on. If, if, if Congress wants to regulate this directly, the Supreme Court said they can do it. If Congress does not regulate this directly, then individual states are free to do it. So things will kind of be progressing on, on parallel tracks for a while. Uh, whether one side or the other kind of makes more progress, I guess, remains to be seen. But certainly in terms of framing what happened on Monday, uh, certainly a big moment, moment but there's undoubtedly months and years of kind of uncertainty and, and other things to happen as well. So I have a question about that, actually. Just This is sort of a legal constitutional question, but if if it was framed as a Tenth Amendment issue, meaning it's a state's rights thing, how can Congress then come in and still regulate it? Or is that just it, saying things that, because, or does the Tenth Amendment say that things that Congress did not specifically, um, wait, it, it says, that, well, no, Tenth Amendment's right, things that are, that were not specifically given out to the federal government or states' rights things, right? Exactly. So nowhere in the Constitution does sports gambling show up. It's it's nowhere in there. Are two hundred plus years ago, no one thought about mm-hmm. uh, putting the, the the phrase sports gambling in the Constitution. But what they did do is the Tenth Amendment that says if we didn't don't specifically enumerate powers to Congress, then it's reserved to the states. But there's a catch-all, and it's called the Commerce Clause. So when we, back in the early 90s, when Congress was considering this this law that got struck down on Monday, they said, well, under the Congress uh, under the Commerce Clause, we should be able to tell states what they can and can't do. That's been definitively stated on on Monday that that Congress can't do that. They can't dictate to states what to do. It's called the anti-commandeering doctrine. But here's what Congress can do, and and in the majority opinion written by Justice Alito spelled this out. Congress can regulate sports betting directly. And even New Jersey's lawyer, Ted Olson, and you were on the panel with him, Jeff, just a few months ago at MIT. During a hearing two years ago, he acknowledged in open court that if Congress wanted to regulate sports betting directly, they would have the power to do that. But they have to name some sort of federal agency or enforcement wing to actually do it. So whether it's the, the Federal Trade Commission, whether it's the CFTC, I mean, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, I mean, they they regulate uh, the, the future prices of, of pork bellies, wheat, and corn. I mean, whether they could do the same thing in the context of sports is anybody's guess. But the the law that got struck down was, was kind of an indirect regulatory mechanism because it told states what they can't do, but, but the federal government itself wasn't doing anything. And, and, and we now know very definitively Congress can't, uh, enact a law that does that. But if the federal government does want to do this directly, they can. And, and, and within hours of the of the Supreme Court ruling, the NFL issued a statement saying they're going to go to Capitol Hill and push for this. Senator Orrin Hatch, who somewhat ironically was a, a co-sponsor of the bill that got struck down uh, by the Supreme Court 26 years ago, he said that he's going to introduce legislation to do this. So there, there may be somewhat of a race to, to the state house because a number of states might be thinking, well, we better get going on this because we don't want to get preempted by, by Congress a little bit later. So, so how, does, how does that work, Ryan, then, if, if like New Jersey, who said that they're going to start accepting bets as soon as what Memorial Day or right after Memorial Day, mm-hmm. if, if, they, if Congress then enacts that they want to you know, put this governed by the CFTC or, or whoever it is, will that then cause... New Jersey to have to stop until they meet the regulations or will New Jersey be sort of grandfathered in and will be able to do what they do until the CFTC is, has created the, the sort of controls or legislation that regulates what they're doing? The former. So the Constitution also has a clause called the Supremacy Clause. And if Congress passes a law that's directly on point and overlaps or conflicts with a state law, then the federal law always controls. So that that would be an interesting kind of hypothetical or example. If if New Jersey and a handful of other states move quickly and put together some sort of regular regulatory apparatus for sports betting, but it ends up being inconsistent with whatever Congress eventually gets around to doing through the CFTC or the FTC or the FBI or, or some some government agency, then those state laws that conflict with the federal one, they would be preempted. And this whole concept of preemption came up quite a bit in the Monday ruling as well. It's kind of an esoteric legal thing, but it certainly ties back into the the whole supremacy clause that federal law does override state law when they're in direct conflict. But the federal law can no longer be that it's illegal. So at some level, they've got to make it work. 
Yes, but what the yeah exactly. But what the federal law can't do, and this was the whole problem with the the, the prior sports betting ban in, in in the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, it didn't regulate directly. All it did was tell states what they can and can't do. That's that's unconstitutional. They can't commandeer or dictate to states what they can do. If they want something done, they have to do it themselves. They have to budget for it themselves. They have to hire people to do it at the federal level, not just tell states what they can and can't do. So could the federal government theoretically put a nationwide ban on sports betting that includes Nevada? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, 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 this, and this, this came up. This is an ironic twist in the whole thing. This came up 26 years ago when the Senate voted on the law that ended up getting struck down mm-hmm. on Monday as being unconstitutional. It was an 88 to 5 vote. There were seven people that abstained, including Herb Cole from Wisconsin, who was a, uh, the, the co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks at the time. But of the five people who voted against this law, only one of them remains in the Senate, but his name's Chuck Grassley from Iowa, and he's now the, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. But he brought this up exactly. He said, why are we grandfathering in Nevada and a handful of other states? This is crazy. Let's just ban sports gambling across the board in all 50 states. That, that's, while that seems like an unlikely option, it is an option that, that Congress could do because the law that got struck down on Monday was not a criminal prohibition. I mean, if you violated this law, you weren't going to go to prison. The only thing that could happen is you got an injunction telling you not to do something. And that's what the leagues got against New Jersey. But it wasn't a criminal law. So, no, Congress could certainly criminalize sports betting if they're so inclined. I mean, that would be a, I mean, an absolute wrench to everything that's going on right now. But it's, it's at least feasible that that could be the case, yes. It's interesting that we haven't heard anything about that and heard the, the I don't think any of the leagues have sort of pushed for that. Uh, none that I'm aware of, no. I mean, but, it, I mean it, this is, it just goes to show that this is, this is not necessarily about morality or right or wrong. This is just about money like anything else is, right? I mean, now they're just figuring out how they can create the controls. Because like this idea of an integrity fee or even like the IP around, um, you know, th- th- that's been well tested that they don't really have the rights to, to charge an integrity fee. Isn't, I mean, isn't that the case? Or, or how, how, does that, how does that play out in your mind in terms of like, the, the actual IP that they have the right to charge for. Like when, you know, like when, before you came on, uh, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about the panel and you mentioned the point that Ted Olson made. Um, we'd love for you to make that again and sort of like give a little bit more color on, on sort of what you, what you think about. Sure. So the whole concept of an integrity fee uh, gained quite a bit of traction a few months ago. It first showed up in a, in a state bill in Indiana. It then showed up after fairly extensive lobbying in a number of other states, the idea under these proposed bills, none of which have been enacted, mind you. I mean, West Virginia is the only state so far this year that's enacted a sports betting bill, and there is no integrity fee in the West Virginia bill. But the language that was at least being debated it was that uh, licensed sports books in individual states would pay a fee off the top, off of handle, directly to sports leagues, in connection with bets that were uh, tethered to, uh, for example, an NBA basketball game. Okay, so it was it was on a league basis, uh, but it was off the handle. One, it was originally one percent. It seems like the NBA and Major League Baseball are now backing up to 0.25 percent. But regardless of the percentage, the whole concept needs to be addressed as as well. And Ted Olson, when he was on the panel with you, Jeff, a few months ago at the MIT conference, he had a great hypothetical that kind of framed the issue in in a real helpful way. Uh, Olson said, well, if somebody wanted to place a bet and a sports book was offering a bet on whether I win the Supreme Court case for my clients, clearly I'm not entitled to a percentage of that bet. I mean, it's just an event. The Supreme Court case is an event. a State of the Union address is an event, a parade is an event, and a, and a sporting event is just that. It's, it's an event. Whether it's connected to some sort of intellectual property, whether it's a copyright or a patent or a trademark or whatnot, I mean, the whole integrity fee issue has never been directly litigated, but there's been a number of other cases about whether fantasy operators or or data companies can disseminate data about sporting events and the two most prominent, uh, there's been three cases total, uh, two of the most prominent ones came on the side that no, 
sports leagues and unions don't have any type of intellectual property to prevent third parties from doing that. It's just information. It's just, I mean, the whatever uh, the score of the game or the whatever the temperature is that day, it's just information, and that type of stuff can't be owned. There's a, there's a famous uh, Supreme Court case from back in 1991 about phone numbers in a phone book, and the, the Supreme Court actually ruled that uh, just data and information like that is just free to use, and it's kind of in the public domain. So whether there's a future lawsuit about the permissibility of integrity fees, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, I, nothing like that's happened, but... Uh, I mean, it has percolated occasionally. The most recent one was about two years ago in New York City when an organizer of a chess tournament, of all things, uh, filed a lawsuit to prevent third parties from disseminating the chess moves, like, you know, pawn to a, a certain square on the chessboard. No, it, 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 it seems silly, but this this no, was I'm just laughing this, because I had, I had the over on total moves in that game. So I was oh, did you? <laughs> okay. Well, so... This came up in a federal case, and, and the judge said, well, no, you don't have intellectual property rights over whether a third party can watch the game on on a public website and say that, that, that Jeff moved his, his knight to this square. So, I mean, it, it does come up uh, whether there's, the leagues try to make an argument that real-time data is different than historical newspaper box score stuff. I mean, maybe that's the kind of line in the sand that'll be coming up, but it, I mean, it hasn't come up yet. It's just kind of things on the margins, but it, it's worth watching. I mean, it, 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 if it shows up in, in a congressional bill or or in some state law that actually gets passed, I mean, it, you, you could certainly see some sports books saying, wait a minute here, I, you're telling me I can't offer in-game odds on a, on a football game? Unless I unless I deal with this sports league exclusively, that sounds like a, a an antitrust violation. I mean, it could it could kind of morph into any type of thing pretty quickly. Okay, so let's just play this out for one second, right? Now the leagues. I mean, I think I think there is enough prior case, just like you said, of, of leagues not having the right to sort of the you know monetize or charge for the IP like it's fair use once it's in the public domain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what? How do Let's just, let's say that they come to a point where they they recognize that and they assume that. Then is the next, I mean, then what is Congress going to be able to do as the leagues lobby them to do things that will allow them to forcibly take money out of this equation before it even starts? Is is there is what's their best recourse to do that? I guess. You're saying which is the sports league's best recourse well, so, to do that? So, here, so here's here's the thinking, right? Right now, the leagues are trying to get ahead of this with this integrity fee, and they called it an integrity fee probably because they realize that they don't have an ability to call it like a straight up licensing fee because of the fantasy sports stuff and all the different cases that have come up. Mm-hmm. But they clearly want to try to get money, you know, from the beginning from people, like some sort of a licensing. What do you think their best bet to try to do that is? Is it that Congress, they, you know, they lobby Congress to put something nationally in that says that for, you know, like that teams do have to pay or, or sorry, books do have to pay leagues a certain fee for, you know, what? Like, is, is there is there any recourse they have that that will allow Congress to actually act in the league's benefit to force, you know, operators to pay them some sort of a fee? Got it. So no, so this has come up, and, and the most vivid examples in New York, and, and the way that that, that that argument has actually been memorialized in a bill that's now pending, it hasn't been voted on or enacted or anything, but it's still pending, it's, it's memorialized itself in what's been this phrase called official data, official data. And under the, the current version of the New York bill, and New York's a, a big state, I mean, it, I, the, the leagues and, and others certainly view, view New York as an important state that might be kind of the, the barometer for other states moving forward. There's a clause in there that requires all licensed sports books that if they're going to offer in-game bets, this is stuff that's based off real-time data, that they have to use either a, an in-house sports league provider or a third party designated by the sports league. Now, for a, pre, a pre-game bet, if you just want to bet a side on a game and sit down for three hours and see what happens at the end, there's actually a clause in this New York statute that says you can get your data from wherever you want. 
So it's it's that minute of a of a division in terms of how this this is being put in the statutes. Uh, New York has kind of drawn the line between newspaper box score stuff like the score of a game at the end of a of just a, a typical total or points per bet. But then on right in the very next paragraph it says if a sports book's going to offer in-game betting, they have to deal with this designated third party or the sports league themselves. So I think that's how it kind of manifests itself at least at the state level. Now whether that would ever get put into a, a congressional bill, I mean I guess it could. I I, I you'd ha- they'd have to hang their hat on on something, but maybe it's nothing more than just effective lobbying. I'm not sure. Uh, changing gears a little bit, if this does get done at a federal level, do you think, what are the implications for the Wire Act, the Wagering Paraphernalia Act, basically all these sort of acts that prohibit interstate commerce or interstate transmission of wagering data? It's a really important question because I've seen some misinformation out out there after Monday's ruling. Monday's ruling makes very clear that this federal law is unconstitutional, but it only attaches to states wanting to do in-state betting, intrastate, so to speak. What it doesn't provide for is an individual state to pass a law and say, oh, great, we're going to be the hub for nationwide sports betting. Uh, You referenced that 1961 Wire Act. Uh, That wasn't discussed at all. It wasn't implicated at all in, in Monday's Supreme Court ruling. It certainly remains good law. And the Department of Ju- and it's a criminal statute. The Department of Justice certainly could weaponize the Wire Act, like they've done before, uh, to go after anyone that's accepting bets across state lines. Uh, you alluded to the the concept of betting information across state lines, and I did look into this uh, a couple of years ago in connection with an academic paper. The vast majority of, of federal court cases that have looked at the transmission of gambling information across state lines have determined that it only amounts to a violation of the Wire Act if the the recipient or the sender is an actually is in the business of sports gambling and they said what does that mean that means a bookie that means somebody who actually accepts bets so transmitting information between two states that where sports betting is otherwise legal uh, this Wire Act does have a, a so-called safe harbor for that type of activity the most prominent court case, at least in, in recent memory of this, was the, the Jay Cohen case with the, the the sports book in Antigua. I mean, that got I mean, got all the way to the footsteps of the Supreme Court. But the, the judges in that case said the Wire Act certainly does attach when at least one out of two of the jurisdictions sports betting is illegal, including information that crosses state lines. So it's kind of a thorny legal thing, but the, the Wire Act is still very much very much out there and and is still something that casinos and sports bettors and whatnot need to be concerned about. I'm not aware of any court case where an individual better, just a a recreational better, has ever been charged with a wire act uh, infraction, but uh, if if he or she is actually in the business of of gambling, I guess it's a remote possibility. Although the way the the law is is phrased, it says in the business of betting doesn't necessarily mean a bookie it's always been interpreted that way but from what i've been told like if it's like if the government wants to go after you they'll go after you and that or they could if you're just betting true it's it's not defined in the statute most of the judges who've interpreted that language that you read uh have said no wait a minute that what they intended here is to to only get to actual booking of bets but no you're right the language is ambiguous enough that if your vocation is sports betting and you check that box on your tax return that says you're in the business of sports betting, uh, yes, certainly someone could make a plausible argument that that's the case. The the one kind of rejoinder to all that, I mean, I went back and looked at the congressional history back in, in, in 61, and, and it was interesting. I mean, Robert F. Kennedy was the attorney general. He wrote a, a three-page letter to his brother, who was the president at the time, and, and kind of touched on some of this stuff. And when he testified before Congress, he did say that the Wire Act is not meant to attach to just mere betters, was his phrase, mere betters. So whether that's different than someone who bets professionally as their vocation, it's anyone's guess. But that was at least kind of the motivation for the statute way back 50-plus years ago. There's just so many gray areas in here, huh? There's a ton. There's a ton of, of, of gray areas, so it certainly allows for flexibility and, and prosecutorial discretion, uh, like you alluded to. 
So let's say that we do, let's say sports betting becomes legal nationwide. Let's say Congress regulates it. What would that do, do you think, for the offshore sports betting industry? Would it be, would books in Costa Rica be able to take bets from U.S. customers? I anticipate no, but would would the government crack down on on sort of bettors uh, placing bets out of the country? Yeah, I thought about that too. I mean, there's there's always the concept of what is the whole kind of substitution effect going to be. But for if it's truly at the federal level and it's one size fits all, I mean, whether there's an opening for for an offshore to get, you know, have some some nexus to an individual state and get some license, even though they're they're primarily located offshore, I mean, it's a possibility. I mean, you alluded to to kind of the the reach of the federal government. They have certainly attached and, and seized funds in the past, whether it's uh, from you know, the sports books on Blue Monday or the or the poker websites on on Black Friday. Uh, so it certainly happened some. I mean, the, the most prominent sports book I can think of would be the BetOnSports.com one, kind of about 10, 12 years ago, uh, which kind of was. I mean, it certainly added to the, the the federal government's coffers in terms of seizing the the money. But it hasn't happened much recently. And whether there's a, an avenue for an offshore to to be licensed in a state that I don't, at least in the first version of the of, of the bill, I wouldn't anticipate seeing that, but perhaps. I mean, I guess it's a remote possibility. Okay, Ryan. So, using your crystal ball, a year from today, or let, let's actually say uh, in in the next Super Bowl. So that's that's a, no, let's say a year from today. Uh, how many? Actually, not this starting football season. The one after that. How many states am I able to bet on football in? Uh, bet on a single football game, there'll be at least 20 states that have the, the, the laws in place and some sort of regulatory apparatus in place. Uh, and then Congress will certainly have, have introduced a few bills and held a couple hearings. I don't anticipate it happening during a kind of a mid-year election cycle like we're in right now, but pretty quickly after the start of 2019, I mean, I think that, that Congress could get serious and and that could kick in this whole idea of a, a federal law kind of overriding the, the, the 20 or so states that may have moved quickly after the Supreme Court decision to do something. So uh, plus or minus 20, I think, is a, a, a reasonable number. 20 is our over under. Interesting. So that is that is crazy. Uh, Rufus, you have anything else for Ryan? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what the benefit you think is to having this done at a federal level. I mean, I know there's the sort of I know there's interest in this in the sports leagues because they want sort of a regulatory framework. But aside from that, I mean, we don't do that for lotteries. No point well taken. It's it, there's certainly a long history that stretches back literally decades that the that Congress has has left gaming to individual states. Uh, but the the power of a unified lobbying group led by sports leagues was successful 26 years ago. And certainly they've already kind of seeded the argument in terms of saying we want to avoid a patchwork of of individual states with differing regulatory requirements, differing tax rates. And my guess is as that conversation kind of ramps up in this this quest for a uniform federal framework that is more one-size-fits-all, that might be more palatable to, to certain stakeholders. I think one example you'll see is Pennsylvania. So that's a state that late last year did pass a law. It's on the books now. It's just, it can be activated now that the Supreme Court decision is, has come in. But I think you're going to see people point to Pennsylvania and say, here's a good example of what not to do. They have an effective tax rate of 36%. I mean, there's, there's licensed sports books that have already said, we can't operate there. On, on the current margins that we that, that we run our sports book, we're not even going to operate there. And I think a number of kind of stakeholders, whether they're sports books or sports leagues, may point to examples like that of saying, "This is crazy. We're getting things all over the map here." And some of these things are some of these tax rates are so bad, or some of these regulatory requirements are so lax that it's going to it's going to encourage the black market to continue. So I, I think there'll be kind of some anecdotal things like that that'll that'll ramp up and, and kind of reinforce the, the lobbying push on Capitol Hill for, for a kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. Well, Ryan, I uh, really appreciate you spending the time with us. I know you've been doing the rounds. Um, I 
didn't know much about you before we did that panel back in the day, but since then have followed you and, and always been incredibly impressed by the depth of knowledge that you have on this subject. So um, I congratulate you for, I feel like what what is like almost like your you're being introduced to the world in a mainstream way. And I, I uh, look forward to hearing more and more of your opinions because my guess is this is just the beginning of you becoming, a, you know, the, the preeminent authority on this, um, you know, from a, from a media standpoint. So, again, thanks for spending the time. Likewise, Jeff. Thanks, Rufus. Thanks, Jeff. We welcome in Jeff Ifra, who is one of the, um, I'd say, preeminent uh lawyers out there who's been dealing with sports betting and uh, sports betting operators and sports bettors um, across the United States for how long, Jeff? Uh, it's going to be 20 years, believe it or not. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a long time. So what, you know, obviously this, this news has been a pretty big announcement. Um, did it surprise you and sort of what, if anything, um, surprised you about it? Um, or did, did it just surprise you that it took this long? So I don't think the decision itself was a surprise. I think that the surprise was the fact that the Supreme Court took the case in the first place. But I mean, once that happened, um, I I kind of went all in on the fact that they were going to then repeal uh, PASPA. Um, it you know the court doesn't take a lot of cases. When they do take cases, they tend to reverse them. Um, so getting the court to take your case to begin with is really um, you know, something that I, I would call unlikely. It's, it's a very low probability play. Once that happened, though, and of course, after the briefs were submitted, once the oral arguments happened, and I kind of witnessed the way the justices were leaning, um, I definitely believed that this decision was going to happen. And so glad to see it did. So you actually submitted an amicus brief for this case. Am I correct in that? Yes. we rep- uh, I represent a trade association that I started that consists of all of the real money gaming suppliers and operators and vendors in New Jersey, currently in the New Jersey market. And um, a lot of those, um, a lot of those members have um, sports betting uh, technology that they're able to deploy in the near future. What did you, um, what did you outline to the court in that brief? If you are allowed to say. Oh yeah, no, of course we, uh, we argued straight, um, straight 10th amendment, um, straight 10th amendment violation. Uh, We, we basically argued the, Really, the, there were a lot of different points that, that I felt strongly about. Um, I didn't necessarily think the Tenth Amendment was the best point, but it turned out to be the point that we briefed, and it's the point that the court actually focused on. So, um, so that that worked out well. Um, you know, we argued that the federal government can't tell the state uh, essentially what to legislate, and what PASPA does, and that was an argument that fortunately, uh, um, you know, resounded pretty well with that decision. So if we if we sort of take a step back or maybe a step forward, and now that this has all happened, how, what what do you think um, going forward? Like you said, you represent operators. I assume that it's not you know without saying the clients' names or anything like that. There, you know, how how do you think this is going to shake out from like a business standpoint? Like who are the people that are going to have the opportunities to sort of start? Um, is it going to be just the familiar names that we know, like the William Hills and like the you know, those other people that are going to expand, or are there going to be opportunities for some of the offshore people that have been operating legitimately to come into the U.S.? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, of course, it's not totally um, clear, but what I would, you know, want to let everyone know who's listening is that first, uh, the current current scheme that's set up is going to require the land-based casinos to enter into partnership with the suppliers. The suppliers would be the technology providers. So in Europe and in offshore, you have these what are called remote gaming licenses. So these are basically you launch in a cloud. If you wanted to have Jeff Ma Sports Bet, FizzPeabodySportsBetting.com, you just launch. In the United States, the model is a little different. Um, it's basically you've got to partner with a land-based casino or tribe or, or a racetrack. And, um, and, and because of that, um, it's, it's a little more complicated. It's a little more costly for the supplier, but it's also difficult sometimes to market that. You might, you know, in, to, to, to WilliamHill.com, you might be going on to GoldenNugget.com, uh, where you find um, sports betting that's run by William Hill. So 
it's it's really not clear how that's all going to work. Some of the states don't even have mobile and online applications of their sports betting um, in the law. So, um, you know, out of the 20 states or so, for example, that have passed the law, only seven say um, that they're also okay with with mobile and online applications of uh, of sports betting, which means you'd actually have to go into the casino, register. It would be cashier style betting. Um, it's not going to be in play gaming. You know, it's not going to be live in play uh, betting. So both the style of the game, the nature of the game, that that may not be the same as what people are enjoying, you know, right now to the extent that they're betting um, on offshore sites. As for the offshore sites, they may be able to come to the United States. You know, it's not clear. Um, it's not clear what a regulator would do. Obviously, if a site has been historically um, a U.S. facing site, if you can go online right now and place a bet on whatever that site is, um, that's going to obviously be problematic to a regulator. But, you know, there are opportunities for those offshore sites to try and fix that, um, sell their technology to a casino, create a new entity um, with the technology, rebrand themselves. There's all sorts of different options. So, you know, we may very well see a lot of the popular names that you know that are currently offshore. We may see them come onshore. Um, they may call themselves something else. They may be acquired by someone else, but um, that technology may be running, you know, the next uh, big sports book in the United States. Do you think this will so be how- a, sorry, do you think this is going to be a good development or a bad development for Nevada specifically? Do you think this will hurt their, their revenue stream from sports betting? Well, you know, it, you know, some of their, so first of all, I mean, sports betting is not really a huge component of their overall gaming pie. Um, you know, it's anywhere from 1% to 3% of their total pie. So I don't think it's, it's ever been a huge factor. I think that it could hurt some of the tourism um, around big events like the Super Bowl or the World Cup. Those have kind of been historically events that draw people into Nevada for the express purpose of, of, of betting on sports. And to the extent that, you know, those events um, now occur in states where um, casinos are accepting bets, that may certainly pull um, those types of motivated bettors from going to Nevada around those events. But overall, I don't think it's going to hurt Nevada, no. Do you think that, um, you know, as as the regulators see the small <laughs> – because I can't imagine that if they rely just on sort of brick and mortar that they're going to be able to get the kind of numbers that they even want to get to. So I would assume that this, this things are going to change very quickly as they learn. Um, what do you see the world looking like, say, in five years from now? How many states is it in? And what is the sort of like landscape look like if you use your crystal ball? Yeah, I think that uh, I think five years is a great um is a great time estimate to use, actually. So I'm glad you used five years. Um, I think that in five years, um, uh, a couple things um, can happen. First, I certainly think that, you know, instead of 20 states, I certainly think we'll be closer to 40 uh, or 45 states. Um, there's always going to be a few states that are not going to um, allow sports betting, regardless of whether or not it generates the revenue states hope it does. Um, so, you know, I would think that it probably would top out at 44 or 45 states. Um, there. I also think that in five years, um, all of those states that um, license sports betting are going to allow for mobile um, sports, and I think that they're also going to allow for betting and wagering opportunities in-game. Um, I think, like you said and, and hinted at, I think that they're going to realize that if they want to generate the revenue that they'd like to see, and also that you know you should read that as meaning from a state's perspective, the tax revenue specifically, um, that they're going to have to offer the types of um, of betting and wagering opportunities that already exist, and they're going to have to make it easier. Um, registering in a casino, traveling somewhere, I mean, for a lot of people who bet on sports, those are places they've never been into. They have no interest in going there. Um, and, you know, the casinos can still make money entering into revenue share agreements with, um, you know, sports betting suppliers without requiring that every single customer come into the casino to register. Um, lastly, I hope that in five years, maybe we can start um, finding some states that get rid of this requirement that the suppliers um, partner up with the land-based casinos. I think it's hampering the ability of, um, uh, of, the, of the industry to, to scale. I think that um, in New Jersey, it's been a very positive experience, but in a lot of other states, the casinos are really holding back um, the scalability of, of these, these different gaming verticals. And they're doing it because they believe it's going to hurt them. Um, you know, the, the economists will tell you it's not going to hurt them, different customers, different consumer base. But nevertheless, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that, you know, that, that the economic impact will be clearer 
in five years, and maybe that will then lead to the U.S. or at least some states adopting a model that's more similar to what exists in the EU, which is a, a remote gaming license, you know, model where you can essentially launch your own site in a cloud without having, you know, to be anchored down by a, a land-based casino. So do you see this you- as a state issue in the future? Because I'm imagining like five years down the road, if, if sports betting is legal in 40 states, and let's say I live in um, D.C. and I have a registered account with William Hill, D.C. or something like that, and then I go over to my parents' house in Virginia and I can't bet on a game there because um, they have a, you know, there's a whole different system there and I'm outside of the, you know, I'm outside of the city limits of D.C., um, which is kind of, I, I'm imagining um, it being similar to what it is now in Nevada where you cannot, um, place a mobile wager outside the state of Nevada. So I guess you're um, you're in D.C. You're a few blocks from the White House. You're you're very plugged into the D.C. scene. How soon do you see Congress tackling this, if at all? So I mean, the leagues have already pushed for, um, and Senator Hatch is sponsoring a bill um, on behalf of the leagues, which is supposedly going to na- introduce national regulation on, on this issue. Now, currently, that national regulation is primarily um, consisting of an integrity fee, which the leagues have been pushing. Um, and I, I saw that Rufus had tweeted out about that quite correctly in terms of, you know, putting into context and perspective what a 1% fee really means. Um, it's higher than state tax would be on, on you know, on, uh, on, on net revenue for most of these operators. So it's, it's a huge, huge potential problem. And it's, it's going to create huge channelization problems for operators who are going to try to operate profitably. Um, I don't know if that bill is going to go anywhere. Um, right. You know, it, it's, it's kind of good on the one hand that the first bill that's being introduced by a conservative Republican by Hatch isn't looking to kill and overturn um, the Murphy decision, because that's what you normally would expect. Um, instead, you know, it's introducing a bill that's looking to just kind of help the league's profit off of this, um, off of this development. So I guess in a good way, that's good news, but it's also bad news for the operators. But I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Um, Senator Hatch um, is is uh, retiring. He's had a long, long, successful career. But I don't I don't think that you're going to get a majority um, of senators or, or members of the House um, agreeing to what he's laid out in this draft bill. Um, you know, whether or not anything else will develop, I, I don't know that anyone's really pushing for it. I don't think the states are pushing to get the feds involved. And if you're a casino or an operator, you certainly should not be asking to get the feds involved. Um, so the only one who seems to be pushing for it is the leagues. And listen, we know the leagues have a lot of power. We know the NFL and the other uh, the other leagues have huge lobbying forces in Washington, D.C. I don't think they have enough to pass legislation like this um, without some more support from additional constituents. And if I'm a land-based casino, even if I'm a national chain, I would be against it. And if I'm uh, an operator, I'd be against it. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, the senators and the House members are all elected officials from their respective states. And, you know, I would expect that members of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, California, Illinois, they'd all be against this because it's not really in their interest and it's going to hurt their home base. So what is then the that's like a very interesting perspective and it makes complete sense and it's counter to sort of what I've been hearing what do you think then the best path for the leagues to start to, you know, the reason they wanted to go national or Congress is because they want to be able to sort of have some mandates in there. I would assume that would help them get some money out of this. What is their best path to, to get money out of this beyond sort of the, the, the non-traditional ways, i.e. like, you know, marketing and whatnot? Well, you know, I don't know any reason why they shouldn't just have some Get, get involved in the game. I, I don't know why the NBA and the NFL and others can't just simply find a way to, uh, to swallow whatever bride they have. I, I don't see it as a conflict, um, although now that they've pushed this integrity fee issue, it may come across as sounding conflicting, but I don't see why they can't basically become operators of their own site. I don't see why they can't be taking um, real money bets on, on play with you know, involving their players and their games. There's um, opportunities to, you know, create tournaments and halftime um, in the game and on TV. There's so many different opportunities. I don't know why they don't try to monetize that. That makes a lot more sense to me than trying to shove an integrity fee down, you know, people's throats. Is there any precedent of that, like, legal in, in jurisdictions where this is legal, where the leagues are actually operating the sports bets themselves, the sports books themselves? 
Is there any? I missed the first part of. Is the there any? Sorry. Is there any precedent? Uh, is there any precedent of, of leagues actually yeah. like operating uh, sports books themselves? I mean, not not that I can think of uh, as far as in Europe or elsewhere. Um, I mean, certainly they they've been. You know, you have examples in Europe where the players and the teams kind of actively participate in social media and and participate on some of the um, the betting sites to kind of promote and increase and improve fan engagement. But, um, you know, the leagues were major investors in, in both daily fantasy clubs. I know, I know that they've now talked about divesting from FanDuel and DraftKings, but I don't know that that it's that much of a difference. Um, all they were trying to do there obviously was in addition to get a good return on their investment, which they may not have gotten, um, was, you know, to improve fan engagement and, and create this kind of nexus. Um, so again, I don't, I don't really see that much difference, but I don't, I don't know that there's precedent per se of what I'm suggesting. So Jeff, um, an issue I sort of see with sports betting being done at the state level um, is, is the Wire Act as well as I guess uh, maybe the Wagering Paraphernalia Act, which basically, I mean, the Wire Act says the transmission of wagering information across state lines is illegal. And so if you have all these different uh, legal jurisdictions or, or jurisdictions where sports betting is legal, could you tra- like, would it be a violation of the Wire Act to sort to transmit um, information um, between those two jurisdictions? So, um, I mean, strictly speaking, yes, it would be. Um, you know, William Hill has obviously been, has a form of mobile wagering that's in place in Nevada. And, you know, there's been no noise from the Department of Justice about any violations of the Wire Act in connection with William Hill's operation. And the Nevada regulators have also blessed it. Um, one of the other things that's kind of an interesting creature that you see in lottery and utilities is um, multi-state compacts. And, you know, our firm was hired um, after an RFP process by the state of Delaware, and we worked with the attorney general and the governor's office in, in Delaware to create a compact between Delaware and Nevada, and it now includes New Jersey. And multi-state compacts are kind of a uh, an interesting legal creature, which um, essentially can be seen to expand the borders of the state through the agreement so that, you know, the state becomes all parties to the state and in that way can also avoid scrutiny of the Wire Act. So we might see um, multi-state compacts coming. um, I mean, in the poker world, of course, the multi-state compact utility is to increase liquidity among the player pools and it requires common operators in order to work. So you have to essentially, you want to have multiple operators in all of the states that are members to the compact and you do have one common operator between those three states, but only one. So, you know, you'd like to to make sure if you were going to do this in a sports betting um, uh, context that you had multiple operators who were able to participate in all of the states. But once you have a compact like that, um, then you can avoid um, the problems of uh, of the Wire Act, which only apply to interstate traffic. And the idea of a compact is it essentially immunizes you against that argument. So do you think that that legalized sports betting in the United States is going to make the Department of Justice more likely to prosecute offshore sports betting and, and maybe even betters that are betting um, with these offshore sports books? Because especially if you have something like an integrity fee, I think it's going to be very difficult for sports betting in the United States to, to be competitive on a, a global market, because I'm guessing these uh, those fees would be passed on to the consumer and you might see minus 115 lines on on uh, NFL sides versus minus one ten, which is the standard everywhere. Yeah, it's a great question, and I I think I can offer maybe some presidential exemption um, examples to answer your question. So let's look at the state of New Jersey. Um, the state of New Jersey legalized um, online poker and online casino, and um, at the same time, one of the biggest problems that New Jersey had was how do we tell our citizens which sites are registered and legal and licensed in New Jersey versus the ones that aren't. If you go onto Google and you just search for, if you see a, a billboard while you're you know, going down the garden state that says, you know, gambling's not legal online, you know, come visit, play online poker online, and they don't see the actual domain name. So they just go search online poker and Google, you know, you're gonna get 10 sites, but you know, there, there was a time, and, and it's still somewhat true today, but there was a time at the beginning when New Jersey launched that half of the sites, if not all the sites on page one of that result, uh, you know, for that query would be offshore sites. And, um, you know, it was a very big problem. It was a big problem for the industry because they've, they're paying the price to get licensed and to come on shore and participate in the market. And then, um, and then consumers can't even figure out the difference. And then 
Google's ranking offshore sites higher than, than the sites that are regulated and licensed. So, um, you know, one of the thoughts at the time, and New Jersey invested a little bit um, of, of money in uh, and manpower in, was to kind of bring the feds in to help, you know, enforce the law against these offshore sites. Um, that didn't really work. So what they tried to then do is go after the affiliates who were generating the traffic to those offshore sites. And a lot of those affiliates were actually in the U.S. Um, and then they started kind of telling them that if they don't stop generating traffic to these sites in New Jersey, there was going to be legal action taken against them. That actually helped a lot. Um, there's still a problem, but New Jersey is a small player. Um, when you talk about sports betting on a national market, you certainly would hope that if there was such a thing as an integrity fee, that a portion of of the fee that was reco recovered would go into enforcement so that um, so that the, the market in the U.S. could scale without the threat of, you know, continued business being done offshore. But I have to say that, you know, historically that hasn't really been the case. Even when regulation has happened, there hasn't been dollars put in um, into offshore kind of kind of enforcement and focus on, on offshore enforcement. And that's that's for a variety of reasons. I mean, Number one, it's very difficult for the Department of Justice to, to prioritize um, when consumers aren't really being harmed, per se. Um, it's very hard for them to prioritize that as, as something to put people on. And number two, there isn't really low-hanging fruit in the form of bank accounts and money being processed through American bank accounts that they can just grab to start um, an investigation. So it's actually it, it's kind of a complex you know, problem. And a lot of the gaming commissioners in various states have asked, that as you consider these state laws, you know, set aside, uh, set aside money for this very purpose. But it hasn't happened. I'm not sure if it will ever happen um, to answer your question. Well, that's uh, I think that's a good note to sort of end on. Um, obviously, that is a very interesting question in terms of like what the world is going to look like for sort of the offshore operators and the, the black market. And with all the uncertainty around sort of things like integrity fee, my guess is that the black market and the offshore operators will be around for, for quite some time. Um, I guess maybe one more question, which is, have you looked at all at sort of the legalization of, you know, marijuana as sort of a proxy for what might happen in this world? Or are there any parallels there? I mean, in general, I've tried to avoid um, tying together um, marijuana to, um, to online gaming. I think that, um, you know, personally, um, I, I think that the, that the total amount of harms that are known um, to legalization of marijuana, I still don't think we totally know um, what the impact is of you know, driving under the influence of marijuana and, and the misconduct that occurs while people are high on marijuana. I mean, we just the, the studies just haven't been done. So to kind of equate, you know, recreational use of something that appears not to harm someone um, to, you know, entertainment like, uh, you know, sports betting or online poker, which is, you know, certainly does not harm anybody, um, where, and where we have so much significant economic data and scientific studies and statistical analyses that kind of demonstrate that, the you know, the, in the gaming context, um, sure, sure, there's gaming addiction, but, you know, but, but that's addressed by the regulators. But, you know, outside of that, this is just something people enjoy to do. It's fun. It doesn't hurt anybody. And, um, I think that the marijuana laws in the, in the country, um, they haven't really taken off beyond a few states. And in the states where they are, there's still some question. The feds have not indicated that they're okay, at least in this administration. Sessions has indicated more than a few times that he's got problems with uh, the states that have legalized marijuana and that he may take action. Um, it's just, it, to me, it's just a whole other animal. Um, so... So no, I haven't really looked at that as as an analogy for for our industry. Got it, Rufus. Got anything else? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that's it. All right, Jeff. Thanks a lot. This is super helpful, um, informative, and I think the cool thing is like you are definitely approaching this or have a perspective that a lot of the sort of other legal experts um, that I've heard on television don't. So I really appreciate the time and thanks for joining us. Hey, if I was better looking, I'd go on TV, but I try to just stick to these podcasts so that, I, you know, there are limited opportunities, but it gets me a chance to get the word out without people. That's, that's, why, that's, that's why Rufus and I left ESPN <laughs> to do podcasts also. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. 
Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jeff. All right. So that was uh, interesting. Um, I thought that both of those interviews were interesting. I, I, I think that, you know, what I'm still not clear on and what I want to ask people and what people keep asking me and I'll ask you is, is what's the opportunity for people like us <laughs> in this new world? Like you think there'd be some new opportunity that didn't exist before, but it isn't readily clear to me what that opportunity is. Um, well, I'll tell you the big opportunity I think is going to be for, for people selling picks. And, and I think that's unfortunate um, because I think there's going to be so many new people entering the market um, and a lot of novice betters and people that just don't understand that, for example, like, you know, 55% is really good. Right. And, and nobody can actually, nobody's going to be hitting 70% long-term, um, against the spread. And so people, um, will be taken advantage of by, by these shady salesmen. And I think it's too bad. So that's the old, like, everyone's like, Oh, we should do more tout or sharp, or we should be the the watchdogs of the industry, maybe it's the time to create that sort of watchdog monitoring service that we've talked about doing before. Yeah. I, I talked to, I mentioned it on Twitter actually um, just a few days ago, but I, there are a ton of difficulties with that idea too. I mean, how are you going to actually make something like that that actually has teeth and is effective, right? Well, I mean, I think you do it like anything else over time. You just build the reputation and people believe in what you're saying and they, you know, I guess what you're saying is how do you actually prevent, how do you market it or get it well known enough that people, I, I guess maybe you look at the history of like the Better Business Bureau or uh, something like that, that, that has been, in, you know, maybe you like study watchdog industries and things like that and see where that opportunity is. Well, I, I think another yeah, thing I mean, that's going to happen is you, sorry. No, I, I go ahead. I, I agree. It's probably challenging to actually make that into a real business in an industry, but go ahead. I think maybe the second best thing is to actually have better media coverage of this stuff. I mean, right now, RJ Bell is in a way the face of sports betting in the United States because he puts himself on ESPN. He gets himself on um, basically on all these radio shows and, and comes like comes across as a quote expert. Um, but he obviously, there's a ton of conflict, I mean, conflicts of interest there. I mean, he runs a, a pregame.com, which is a site that sells uh, sports betting picks and is clearly not transparent at all and, does, and hides um, long-term records of touts. Um, but I think that there's going to be much more of an appetite for sports betting coverage. And so the question is, who's going to provide that and how will it be done in a way that's impartial and does not have conflicts of interest? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there's some people trying to do this, like that's an action network who, um, you know, full disclosure is the, the people that sponsor this, um, what the sports action app itself is the one that sponsors it, but they are trying to create this treasure trove of content. And, and this was sort of a big moment for them, I believe. Um, you know, and, and then if you think about like the ESPNs of the world, like how are they, are they going to shift their coverage or is this going to become like, I think that's one of the things that potentially is the most interesting to me is like, how do you create good content and coverage around this? And, and I think, you know, both of us have done this sort of stint on ESPN. And I think one of the reasons that we didn't like it is we thought it was really challenging to do that. And even within this podcast, I think you and I find it challenging to stay as, you know, sincere to our intention and roots um, without like actually providing what people want, which is like picks, right? People all want picks and we don't want to just give picks because picks without context and picks without, you know, it, it's just hard to actually provide valuable content to people. Um, and it's, it's hard to, to come off, not like sounding like a, like a shyster or something like that. So, I mean, even yeah. with the free picks that we provide, we get crap all the time on Twitter when, when it doesn't loop win or, when a line changes or when anything we do has any slight amount of promotion behind it. So uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. What, so what are you, what's the thing you're most excited for? Is there anything you're excited for about this? I don't know, actually. I mean, I, I'm excited because <laughs> I think as we discussed, it's, it's symbolically important. And I think it's, it's sort of opens this new chapter up and, 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 and I'm excited about where it's going to go. I don't know. Nobody knows where it's going to go. And, and I think that that's kind of exciting. Yeah. What about you? What, do, what are you excited about? I'm excited that it, 
you know, that, that it'll be legal and that it won't feel quite as, you know, shady and, and whatnot, like that aspect of it. Yeah. I think that aspect of it. Um, I am like, you know, we had this sort of conversation with, with Rodenberg off the, off the air, which is that this is like this cottage industry that in some respects worked really well. And now it's all of a sudden going to become a different industry that may not work quite as well. So I do think like I'm more, I'm probably more um, wary and like almost like reticent than I am necessarily excited and enthusiastic. It's not like I was, you know, out tweeting, you know, congratulatory tweets to everyone. Um, I am interested in understanding like where this shakes out for, you know, the industry and the opportunities. I mean, I think that we've talked quite a bit about how there will be now this need for way better data um, from so many standpoints, from latency, accuracy, and whatnot in the U.S., and I think there's an opportunity there because I don't think anyone has established that foothold. Obviously, there's some companies that have been around here for a while, but I would say none of them are quite ready for this from a from a quality and accuracy and latency and technology standpoint. So I do think there's an opportunity there. That's probably the thing that I've found the most interesting so far that I've thought about. What about like Bet Radar? They're pretty big, right? I mean, they're they're big world. Sport radar, you mean Sport Radar? Bet Radar is a part of Sport Radar. Yeah. Yeah, but so so Bet Radar obviously is their you know their subsidiary or whatever that does a lot of the um, work offshore and not offshore like legally um, internationally, which in jurisdictions where where this legal, um, their U.S. operations just aren't there yet. Um, and so as as maybe maybe it's not hard for them to do that because they just have to turn on whatever they do outside of the U.S. into the U.S. Um, but I wouldn't say that they have they have a dominant position because they've done this outside the U.S. and they've been positioning for a while. But I don't know if they're necessarily like I, I would still say that someone could could compete with them in the U.S. for sure. So changing gears a little bit, I think that I mean, you know, you asked what I'm excited about. And I think as a professional, um, as someone that bets for a living, to me, this is not going to have a big impact on me right now, because I don't think that, you know, I really don't think that we're going to have a free market in the United States. And I don't think it's going to be competitive, um, at least to start off. But I think the effect is going to be much greater for the recreational gambler. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be much better for like the people that like to do office pools and the people that like to put $50 or $100 on a game. And, you know, like, uh, I, I mean, I don't know how, how this works, right? If it is if it is something that's going to have to be at every sort of, um, it's going to have to be tied to some land-based thing, right? Then you have the idea of like, oh, you're going to drive down to Foxwoods to put the sports bet in. Uh, it seems like somewhat inconvenient, but like maybe this helps New Jersey get back on the you know, map in terms of like Atlantic city and things like that. Um, I have a hard time, like really honestly understanding the future. I mean, I wrote this article for ESPN a while ago about it. And, and I, I still fundamentally believe that the next couple of years is still going to be kind of a mess. And most people, like you said, it's not going to change people that are betting, you know, legally or, or legally or illegally or offshore, or whatever it is like the, the professionals are probably still going to stay the same. It's not going to change their lives. I think when this becomes interesting, and we all know this, is when there's like a Betfair-like exchange that allows for people to to really, you know, make their own liquidity and and create like a really disruptive market in this world, and then that becomes super interesting. Um, but again, like I, for a while, it's probably not going to happen. So why, why now, don't we try to why don't we try to open our own bet exchange? Well, we could the, do the it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have so many problems with the industry. Why not? There we we'll, go. We'll, we'll, we'll there take. We'll we'll be licensed and regulated. We'll 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 have very very low commissions. Encourage liquidity. I wonder. So you could actually use even if you're not able to operate cross states, right? You could use the liquidity gained in one state, or the you know you could basically balance your portfolio across states. So as long well, in as a way, you were like you could, able, you can make it. You can make it a. A sort of pseudo exchange it could actually be technically be a book but you could have an exchange like you could treat it like an exchange that way with the with the volume in different states yeah that makes sense that makes sense all right well 
I think that's enough on legalization of gambling for now. I think this was a, a big week for everyone, but I think like you said, and like we said the other day, this is probably just the beginning and like what's in store and, and what's going to happen in this industry. Nobody knows any parting words from you. Wee. Was that your celebratory lap around the whatever? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a good week. Yeah. It's I, I think, I think, I, I think it's exciting. Um, I'm excited to see what's next in the industry. I'm definitely like uh, cautious and, have some trepidation about it, but I'm excited to see what's next. So thanks for joining us guys. As always, uh, that's process is brought to you by the sports action app. And we will talk to you guys in a couple weeks where hopefully we'll have maybe a baseball sports better on. And maybe Rufus and I will have a public debate about some things we've been brainstorming over on WhatsApp. So if Rufus allows us to do that, maybe we'll do that. You know, I so. think I've actually found my solution to that, Jeff. So it won't be public brainstorming anymore. <laughs> All right. Good. Thanks, guys. See you guys in a couple of weeks.